I and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my good friend, Richard Bence, Ramsdorf Fence, CEO, owner, founder, head designer, chief marketing officer, and everything else that needs to be done, head T-boy as well, I believe, of Studio Underdog. Rich, how are you doing, mate? I'm very good. I've got a big smile on my face, but, you know, once again, you're one of the few people that uh, pronounces the surname correctly. <laughs> Even when I do correct people, obviously, it's typically in one ear, out the other. So the fact that you uh, remember my little uh, fence anecdote is, uh, yes, put a, put a big old smile on my face. You know, we're going to have to shelf this amazement of yours uh, that I remember your name, because every time we talk, it's the first thing we discuss. And it's like, okay, I've got it now, Rich. I got it. Okay. But but I've been alive for for thirty years and no one remembers. So of course you know it's the first thing I pick up on and I have to uh, yeah I have to congratulate you on uh, yeah on getting that right. Oh, thank you. It is one of the crowning glories of my career. Um, and to be honest, it's actually something. It is more special than I'm making out because as listeners to the real time show will know, I frequently mispronounce people's names and uh, often my own as well so it, nobody's safe but you seem to be the exception because you provided me with that little aid memoir which i uh, very much appreciate now we have you back in the studio a repeat guest a rare thing indeed for the real-time show because you have some very interesting news and rather than us getting ceos founders designers back on the show every time they release a novelty because it's rather par for the course in other cases you have had, up until this point, as in your brand, just one model. And there have been variations thereof that have set the internet alight with interest and encouraged people to even become watch fans, having never been watch fans before because of the interesting and joyful approach you have to watchmaking. But now you are finally about to release, or by the time this show goes out, you will have just released your second model. Can you please tell us all about it? And spare no expense on the details because everybody is absolutely desperate to hear more. Well, yeah, uh, this is my, it's a big one, isn't it? This is my second album and it's taken its time, but I think, you know, good things do take time. Um, as you said, it's been, oh, crikey, two and a half, maybe even three years now since, you know, I launched the brand and I launched with my chronograph collection. And the core range has pretty much stayed exactly the same. You know, the three items that I launched the brand with uh, was the the watermelon, the desert sky, and the goofy panda. And along the way, we had a, a few introductions. But that, along with the mint choc chip, has been my core range for for years, um, which is crazy to say. Uh, to say years, it still feels like, uh, yeah, still feels like I've been running a business for. God, yeah, weeks rather than years. But here I am ready to ready to launch something new. So I, I'm pleased to say that uh, we've got a, a field watch that will be joining the uh, Studio Underdog lineup, um, which has taken its time, but it's it's been a real fun challenge to to uh, to introduce something new and to help shape, I guess, what what Studio Underdog is. What is the DNA of the brand? You know, that is a very good place to start because that is a question a lot of people had. It seemed obvious enough for a time that you were, well, you had a goofy approach to design. You like to laugh at yourselves. You like to take inspiration from the oddest places and bring some fruity colorways to the wrist. But the question was, is that sustainable? How can you farm that out to another model? And I think that you were quite conscious of that early on. The follow-up, therefore, needed to be 
in spirit the same, like you say, the same DNA, the same core values maybe, but not quite the same shtick. So exactly what did you decide? What did you decide to hang the second model's hat on? So that's it. You're talking about core values. And I think for me, it's incredibly clear and obvious what the core values of Studio Underdog are in terms of how I approach designing a product. Whereas I think to a, to a lot of people or to people discovering the brand, Studio Underdog is fruit on a dial, you know, you've got, or, or food on a dial. And I think that works super, super well for the, the kind of the Chrono collection. And it, it had this sort of organic growth. You know, the first one I did was a watermelon. There was a couple of others, you know, you've got a panda and Desert Sky, which was based on sneakers. So it was weird and wonderful uh, inspirations. But then it quite organically started to lend itself to to fruity flavors or to, you know, to foody things or things people are, are really familiar with in, you know, day-to-day life. But for me, the kind of the approach that I have to the brand is a design-led approach. And that approach originates from exactly how I started designing the Krona collection, which was I wanted this vintage silhouette where if you look at the watch from, you know, from any other angle, it's staying true to, in the chrono case, you know, 1960s chronographs. And then the dial is this really sort of modern, playful twist in the chrono series. I did that with use of color and graphic design and, and a fruity inspiration. Whereas for the field collection that I'm, uh, well, now just launched, um, it's a similar focus where I've got this silhouette of a field watch. I've stayed true to, you know, the 1945 brief in terms of what the British government briefed brands with in terms of, you know, a military-esque field watch. You know, we've got drilled lugs. We've got a case that has a, a bezel built into it. It's not a separate part. You've got a closed case back, NATO strap. And then the studio underdog twist is a playful injection uh, into the dial. And what I've done in this case is, is used uh, materials rather than just colors to achieve something that's, that's really playful in its own right. So the kind of the dial here is, is the centerpiece. And we've got a few different dial variations, but essentially the concept is we've got this full loom dial uh, that has multiple layers of, of superluminova. And then on top of that, we've got a, a sapphire disc. So the dial itself is actually made from, uh, from a piece of sapphire, which is a one mil uh, piece of sapphire. And on top of that is all the printing details. So you get this incredibly, you know, incredible detail, incredible depth in the dial. Um, and the, the numbers and numerals appear to float. And you really have to kind of get it in hand and, and see it in hand to, to appreciate all that's going on. It, it even takes a while to figure out exactly how it's achieved and, and what what you're looking at, but uh, it certainly yeah created something something quite unique, quite playful, but in a very different playful approach uh, versus the original series. If that makes sense, it does it does. But let me stop you there because I want to talk in detail about this design and some of its elements later on. But you said something that popped out in my mind, and that was you need to get it in hand to have a look and appreciate exactly what's going on there with that depth and that incredible crisp printing on that sapphire surface. How can people do that? Now, as we know, you were recently at an event in Brighton in your 
hometown effectively with several other british brands that took place in september we covered it extensively on the show i'd like to hear a little bit about how that event went but then also if you wouldn't mind please tell our listeners how they can see your watches in the near and more distant future and whether or not you have plans to establish a retailer network for sure so at the moment you know as you said the challenge for for me primarily being i guess an, an online business is I don't get that many opportunities to, to get watches in hand. So my solution to that is really going to as many kind of, uh, whether it's fairs or whether it's watch meetups, uh, to, you know, to meet people and, and get my watches on people's wrists. So as we're launching this, this uh, I don't know when this video recording is going out, but from the 20th to the 21st of this month, uh, I'm going to be in New York at the Wind Up Watch Fair. So that'll be the first uh, first look for for the community to to get hands on, um, and we've got some some additional showcases uh, later down the line throughout 2024. And I've actually just come back from uh, three back to back weekends of, uh, of fairs uh, and events uh, from Edinburgh to down to Brighton, uh, one in London. So yeah, really trying to. Uh, to take advantage of uh, you know of this opportunity to, to to showcase the watches in person. So just for everyone that isn't aware, we're, we recorded early October. This is going out on the nineteenth of October, just two days after the launch of the Studio Underdog Field Watch. And you are talking about New York, right? New York Wind Up Watch Fair. Indeed, yeah. So I'll be so any of your listeners that happen to be uh, to be in New York and and haven't already planned to to come along to Wind Up. Uh, something I'd really encourage you to do, not just to, to get hands on with uh, with the watches that I'm talking about today, but uh, also to check out all of all of the other amazing brands and, and what some other brands have to offer. And I think I'm sure there'll be other brands that will be in- introducing some new and exciting products, uh, you know, timed for the the wind up watch fair as well. So, what about retailers? Is it possible, or is it absolutely off the cards for myriad reasons? It's a good question, and so. From my side, I'd, retail really offers something that I'm unable to do at, at this point, which is people being able at at any time come in and check out, uh, you know, a, a, a physical watch. I don't have a boutique, or even in Brighton, I have my office, but nowhere really to host. So there's a real strength in in growing a kind of retailer network. The challenge is with all the benefits that retail has to offer. There's a lot of additional costs. You know, they have to pay for the uh, the actual um, what do you call it? Not brickwork. They have, you know, there's a lot of additional costs in terms of the actual storefront, hiring staff to explain uh, all about the product, and that cost then uh, is is essentially somewhat paid by the brands. So if I was to offer my products to a retailer, they'd be paying substantially less uh, than than an end consumer. And really, my my model isn't built for that. My model is built on on direct to consumer, which essentially means by having a direct to consumer e commerce business, I am able to price my products uh, lower than than brands that are working through retail. And for me, that is that's a key part of the business. That's a key part of the brand and and a, and a bit of a focus. There are some exceptions to that rule where I work with some retailers such as uh, James Porter um, up in Glasgow and recently um, 
Time and Tides down in, in Melbourne who have some uh, some samples and things. But the honest reality is I'm, I'm not really making any profit on those. It's more a, a brand building and a community exercise where I know both of those stores have a really, really engaged community. And so I kind of want to uh, to open up that option. But yeah, it doesn't really make sense on paper. Hopefully that's somewhat interesting though. No, absolutely it is because this is one of the things that certainly younger independents have to fight against. You know, you're trying to make your prices uh, appealing to an audience that has so many options and from brands that are much bigger, much more established and benefit from the economy of scale, which you never will be able to in the same way, or at least not for a long time. And so getting that physical representation, getting watches into people's hands so they can feel the quality is always an issue. But you, at least, are very active on the event side of things. And as you say, you've been to some recently, you'll be going to some more before the end of the year. So if people are curious about just how good these watches are, I mean, these are watches that have, like I said earlier, set the internet ablaze with enthusiasm because of their quality and price point. Go along and check them out. But let's talk about the price point because the new model is significantly more expensive than the chronograph as people have come to associate with your brand now. There is a very good reason for that, but I'll let you do that justification and give us the price breakdown of all the pieces that are still effectively extant in your collection. For sure. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's, there's a number of, uh, of reasons, but what it essentially came down to is a lot of people were, were coming to me and saying, why don't you increase your price point? You know, the, the demand is there for the product. And what I took from that was, well, look, it's clear that there's certain customers out there that are happy to pay a higher price, which means I can potentially offer a better product, or at least it means I'm able to start working with different materials or work with different or better suppliers. So the field watches are at a higher price point based on the fact now we've got uh, a Swiss movement, a Swiss Sunita movement, still assembling the watches in the UK, which is something we're having to build out ourselves. We're working with some great partners such as the strap tailor for our straps. And we've got this incredibly unique dial design, multiple layers of Superluminova. We've worked with the Superluminova factory to create custom pigments. We've got quite a complex construction in terms of the dial with the sapphire. And all that kind of adds to the cost. But it's it's clear that, you know, it, it, this added, you know, added cost has enabled us to create something really quite unique. Um, so I think it's justified. So the, the current uh, collection or the, the, the recently introduced field watch collection uh, is at £800 and that comes with uh, a NATO strap and a leather strap. So I'd still like to think a pretty good uh, value proposition, but you're right, it's, it's gone up uh, somewhat compared to the, the, the current Chrono series, which still will be maintained. You know, we're not, uh, we're not discontinuing that, uh, that line. This is just the second introduction, basically. Do you think this is going to have any effect on the rabid sellout that you've experienced for all of the chronograph models? Because although the chronograph uses a very openly communicated Chinese chronograph movement, it still seems ridiculously good value, around £500, around $600, it's a mechanical chronograph. It's a beautiful classic architecture of a movement. By the way, if anyone didn't know, it's based on an old Swiss caliber, very beloved Swiss caliber. And it has this great build quality. It has this great vintage styling. 
And that's just, that's, that's a lot. That's a huge value proposition. Why are customers going to follow you to the next model? Now you've stepped it up and you've brought in a Salita. Chronograph's gone. There's some exceptional dial elements, but what is it that people are going to follow? Well, I can't give you that answer. We'll have to we'll have to go to the people. You know, this is this is pre-launch. Maybe there won't be a single person out there that is actually interested. But uh, yeah, we'll see. I think I think I'd like to think it's that same approach. You know, really having something something unique and interesting that is a talking point. Um, and from the original Chrono series, that was from this incredible uh, incredible movement in terms of it being such a good value proposition. Um, but that being said, even if we look at that one as an example, if it was purely down to uh, making a decision based on price in terms of, uh, of a movement, there's certainly other, you know, other watches that that house that ST1901. I think what the original 1963 chronograph you can get for uh, considerably less than than uh, than my chronos. So I like to think maybe it comes down to to what the brand represents and and it being able to offer a product uh, that is unlike anything else. And I think that stays true for for both the Chrono series uh, and the Field Watch in their own right. Um, but obviously, both products are quite different and both products are in, in a somewhat different price bracket. Um, so we'll see. Time will tell. I wonder whether this model is going to be very popular amongst your existing community and be more of a love letter to them or seem like that to them at least because i think a lot of people that have bought studio underdog in the past are so impressed with the model that you created they see that as an ambassador for the brand and of course there's you as well i've never heard a bad word said about you which is an incredibly powerful thing to have in your locker being well liked and i think that when people got that watch on their wrists they were so taken by it so impressed by what you were able to offer at that price point with that level of creativity they kind of committed to you they've gone all in on the brand and so i think a lot of people that have bought the first will buy the second and i I just wonder whether there was anybody that saw the first and didn't like the first but will be turned on by the second or whether it will be a case of saw the first liked the first couldn't buy the first desperately wanted to buy into the brand at this point of its evolution and then goes for the second I don't expect an answer. I know that I'm just uh, positing possibilities. No, but it's a it, it's a great point, you know. And there are the significant differences between the two. Like like you said, there's uh, there's some people that even though that uh, the the ST1901 chronograph movement has got such a rich history, I'm sure there's there's some customers that say, you know what, I've maybe had a bad experience with one before, or you know, I don't trust the movement, and I'll wait for something there. You know, more reliable, or wait for something Swiss, for example, which is which is maybe where this comes in. But uh, yeah, I, I'm interested to see what the what the reception will be. My my honest thoughts on you know how the how the launch will go is I don't think or I don't expect this series to to be as you know as in demand or as as popular necessarily as the Chrono series. But for me, it's it's the right product because what it does is it, it helps to shape what the brand is about. And I think that's super important for the long term. And me, this, uh, this uh, introduction is essentially me communicating what it means to be a studio underdog watch in terms of that design, um, that design process that I spoke about, uh, you know, uh, at the start of uh, at the start of this recording. 
So, so you know, because to a lot of people, Studio Underdog on the Watermelon Map, you know, is the future of Studio Underdog just, just pink and green on a dial? And if that was the case, is there longevity there? Is you know, is that what the people want for the, for the first thing? I'm sure there's a lot of people that that is exactly what they want. But but how you know how long term is that? Where will the brand be in a few years if that was the case? I think with this field watch, it sets the brand up uh, you know for for being here uh, you know in many many years to come, which is uh, which is where I want to be. Okay, well that answers my next question because I was going to say maybe it's not so much about what the people want, it's about what you want. There's two ways to start a brand. I mean, there's many ways to start a brand, but there's two ways to look at a brand's permanence. One is you fling out an idea there that capitalizes on trends or picks up on a very small niche, exploits it as far as it can be exploited, runs with it for five years of cool and then blows up and disappears in a cloud of smoke. Or you can start something that is going to continue perhaps even beyond your own lifetime. And are you more in the latter camp? And you, you're bang on. I, I absolutely am. Um, and the the kind of the interesting thing there as well is when I started the brands, when I when I came to the market with a watermelon themed column wheel chronograph, you know, clearly that wasn't a commercial decision. Had I had any business advisors, they would have quite quickly poo pooed that idea. I'm quite sure. So that approach of you know designing something for myself and and, and it just being a product almost uh, for me. That was a focus from the start. There was nothing else to to deviate from that, and that's something that I've kind of had to you know had to remind myself of you know when I've been designing other products. The obvious thing would be for me to uh, to introduce a, a dive watch, you know, that's uh, you know as a second as a second album because that's the watch that 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 is most popular on the market. Was for me that didn't feel right. I wanted to do something that I was interested in. And originally, I started designing this watch. God, it must have been probably over two years ago now. So, from those original drawings, it was still when I was in that uh, that state of mind of just you know designing for myself. It is Studio Underdog is just my uh, my passion project. Uh, it's also now you know my business. But what made Studio Underdog successful in the first place was that approach. You know, I wasn't trying to be commercial. I wasn't trying to sell as many watches as possible. And that's something that I kind of, I like to think uh, I maintain as an approach, even though, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly more challenging because I do have to think, uh, think of a business, think the most successful way to go about doing that is just staying true, you know, to the origins of the brand. Yeah, I can't say fairer than that. If you are able to maintain that and maintain your creativity and create watches that are diverse but still on brand long term, then I'm sure you will continue to have great success. You mentioned the Dirty Dozen, or tangentially at least, that you built this watch to the requirements of the um, MOD in 1945 or whenever it was they were actually eventually issued. I think it was around then because it was right at the end of the war, right? I'm looking at these watches now and I'm thinking there's definitely one of them that I would take into the trenches with me and that's the black one, uh, reference number 02BKG, but I'm pretty sure the rest of them would get me shot from a distance because those dials are all fully luminous. So how about you take us through the design of the four pieces that we have. They are named Pink Lemonade, Tiffany with a line through it, Stephanie Blue, love it, Full Moon with a zero as the second O, and Midnight. So tell us about Pink Lemonade, Stephanie Blue, Full Moon and Midnight, if you don't mind. For sure. I'll go through in that order. So uh, Pink Lemonade. So this is the one that is probably, at a glance, most visually, obviously, studio underdog. 
you know, pink lemonade, a fruity fun flavor. Um, you've got this really nice gradient dial going from a light pink up to uh, to a nice uh, uh, light lemon, uh, lemony yellow. Um, so at a glance, it's it's clearly clearly a studio underdog watch in terms of the color. And as you look more into it, as I said, with the sapphire dial, you've got the the numerals that kind of appear to float uh, float on top of the dial and cast a really nice dynamic shadow when you're in the sunshine. And whilst you're in the sunshine, that is of course you know powering up the the superluminova, uh, which is across the entire dial. And this was actually one of the ones that was quite a technical challenge because we were trying to figure out how to how to achieve a gradient with a full loom dial. So in terms of the manufacture process, this one has its uh, a totally different manufacture process uh, to the other full loom dials. Um, we've got seven layers of, of superluminova on this one, so it's super super bright uh, once it is powered. Um, so visually, it's it's a lot of fun. So that's pink lemonade. I'll go on to uh, to Stephanie Blue, and as you said, I think the uh, the press release that I I sent out sort of jokingly has Tiffany originally written and then, and then crossed out because I wanted to just poke a little bit of fun uh, about the 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 crazy trend that uh, that went all around the the watch worlds last year, which was this uh, you know. Pastel bluey greeny color that uh, that we've all all know as uh, as Tiffany. Mine isn't that. It's a beautiful uh, pastel blue. Uh, so I thought I'd kind of poke fun at that whole ordeal by calling it uh, Stephanie Blue. This one's my personal favorite. Uh, we worked with uh, Superluminova to create a a custom a, a custom Pantone matched uh, pigment here. So it's exactly as I wanted. Um, and yeah, quite quite a lot of fun and and super bright, but not quite as bright as the full moon, uh, which which yeah, you wouldn't really want to be uh, to be wearing in the trenches because it would be a bit of a bit of a beacon. I was thinking that would be quite a fun a fun launch campaign or launch video, some, some really serious uh, mili- military style video of someone sneaking out of the water and then pulling their. Uh, Pulling their shirt back to, to check the time, and then suddenly they're they're lit up, and uh, you know, <laughs> an enemy infantry, infantry are uh, are running. So, yeah, if you see that in a few months' time, it's because of uh, I thought actually, yeah, we'll go with that. But uh, yeah, that's the kind of vibe uh, <laughs> that we're getting here, and the the loom on this one, as I said, is is the most bright out of uh, them all, and, and glows a really beautiful blue. And this one, I think, is 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 really interesting because. At a glance and, and at a distance, the people might question as to you know why it's a studio underdog watch. It looks like a very serious, you know, white cream dialed, you know, uh, military watch. Whereas the fun element is, you know, is that unknown? It's when you do go into a dark room and and suddenly it's this beautiful, punchy, vibrant blue, and that's really kind of the you know the studio underdog twist in in these models. And then finally, we've got the the one which I'm really interested to see what the reception of this one is, the, the Midnight, which is, it has the same dial construction as all of the others with this you know, sapphire dial, but doesn't have loom on, on the back. The, the the hands and the numerals are, are looped here. So it's your your most traditional uh, looking field watch, but it's still got this real depth and, uh, and dynamic aesthetic, you know, when you do look at it. So I'm really interested to, 
to see what people think of this one because it's uh, it's yeah it's it's quite different really. I'm quite charmed by it to be honest. I think it's a beautiful watch in general. It doesn't need to be anything more than it already is. It's just a product in in some cases. I mean, it's such a lovely thing in terms of its proportions and it looks of exceptional quality. I can't wait to get one on my wrist either to check it out in real life. But tell me about these two screws that people are going to notice on the horizontal axis of the watch right next to the nine and the three. What are they for? So maybe this is kind of my uh, my education in terms of I, I used to work and, and design a lot of Bauhaus style, uh, style products. So this kind of, uh, you know, functional element of, of product design is is something that that I find quite interesting. So these screws that you can see on the dial uh, are functional. They're between the the three, uh, the, or they're at the three hour marking and, and the nine hour marker as well, uh, a clock marker. Sorry, um, and these hold the dial in place. So they hold what is essentially a dial that's made up of four layers. We've got this uh, brass uh, base plate. You've got some uh, the all the all the loom layers. We've also got a 0.2 millimeter thick stainless steel disc that separates uh, the superluminova superluminova layers from the sapphire crystal, which was something that took oh god, best part of a year to figure out and get right. Um, oh, I've, I've gone off on an absolute tangent. I forgot what I was talking about. But essentially, we've got this uh, incredibly deep dial, which is in total two millimeters thick. Compared Christ. to your your typical 0.4 mil thick dial, you know that explains why it looks, you know, why you have so much depth. And yeah, getting back on track, that's what these uh, these screws, these pins, all hold together. And when the when it is all cased up, we've also got the the case holding everything in, and then these screws also help to stop anything uh, anything rotating. So yeah, quite a quite a complex dial. Um, yeah, quite a complex dial. I'll say so. Yeah, very interesting. So there's actually a 0.2 mil gap between the underside of the sapphire and the top side of the superluminova coating. Exactly that. Yeah, and it's, it's as silly as it sounds that that 0.2 mil is so so necessary mm. because we worked on. I think this must be the fifth or sixth set of samples with minor changes and improvements and then adjustments. But one of the main things we were trying to get right. Um, yeah, was the visual aesthetic of the superluminova. Mm. And what we were finding is when we didn't have that spacer, um, the the superluminova layer would get compressed up uh, against the sapphire dial. And depending on its environment, so essentially the pressure, it would look quite different uh, where the areas were touching or that where there was a bit of a gap. Mm. And we really found this out when we were doing some water resistance testing and putting them in in high pressure uh, environments. And suddenly the dials were doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things that, yeah, were not uh, were not particularly desired. So, yeah, this is a very, very important 0.2 mil gap. That is not the sort of thing that anybody would predict without having had that, that personal experience and testing it so extensively. Tell me this, the superluminova layer, is it a solid disc of Lumacast or is it printed onto that brass base plate that you mentioned? No, so it's it's multiple layers of, uh, of printing. So what we do is we mix the pigments um, to, to become, uh, you know, to become, I guess, similar to a paint. We apply that paint, wait for it to dry, and then we do that process, you know, it's a screen printing process. 
up to seven times um, to achieve that, uh, you know, A, to achieve the desired color, because for some of them, like I said, the Stephanie blue, that color is built up, you know, within the pigment, uh, within the color of the pigment. Um, so, yeah, I would be really interested to see what a full uh, disc gloomy caster would look like. And that's something that, uh, yeah, that, that maybe I'll have a, have a think about in future. It could be interesting, yeah. But, I mean, what you've achieved here in terms of visual impact is extreme. I'm uh, very taken by it. I'm, I'm looking at these screws and I'm thinking, how have you managed to make sure they're all aligned so that the slots are vertical? Is that just a tri- trigger the press release or what? No, no, that's 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 in production. That, uh, that took a while as well, actually. I was... Um, I was getting some feedback when I created some original sets of samples. And as I said, I've, I've had some samples for, for quite a while. I was getting, getting feedback and, and what, you know, what people thought of them. And that was one of the comments from a trusty member of press who said, oh, if only we could have these aligned. And I said, okay, let me go back to the drawing board and, and figure out how to do that. So yeah, we figured out a solution there. Uh, so I can say those, those will all be, uh, be vertical to, uh, yeah, to to keep uh, keep people like yourself uh, smiling and happy. How does that? <laughs> well, I really appreciate it that you're taking on board my pernickiness. But yeah, uh, that's uh, it is nice to see. Very clever and not as easy to do as people might think. They might take it for granted, but that is um, yeah something you have to spend quite a bit of time getting right. I love the crayon engraving, by the way. I think that the uh, the cross zero logo is is really coming into its own now. Thank you very much. Okay, so inside this watch, we have a Swiss-made Salita Caliber for the first time, and you have obviously worked with Superluminova with RC Tritech, I suppose? Yeah, correct. Okay, great. So you're really working with Swiss suppliers to upgrade the quality level on every front here. I think that you've got a really nice selection of of dials. You know, the pink lemonade, like you say, is the typical studio underdog one. Then basically the Stephanie Blue with his orange hands might as well be a real-time show special edition. Thanks very much for <laughs> that. And then we've got the incredible luminosity of um, the slightly suicidal full moon. And then <laughs> finally midnight, which, you know what? The more I look at it, and the more I look at it in the nighttime view and you see the reflections created by the sapphire against the loom the more intrigued i am by it that's that's the one that i tell you what my photographer has has absolutely gone crazy over because it's essentially a black mirror polished finish that's Mm. what it looks like so him trying to get uh get photos uh has been a bit of a struggle because it's just reflecting anything and everything around it but uh we've got there but yeah, it, it's come out. It's come out really, really, really well, and it, it's got it's got quite a visual difference compared to to the other three. The construction is the same, but because you've got this uh, this dark base plate, it really sort of you know, plays with the light and it refracts and reflects all over the place. So, given the publication date of this episode, you will all be able to go and have a look at these watches on studio underdogs website you can find that at u-n-d-e-r-d-0-g.com and the launch window is important to communicate right so it's going to launch on the 1st of november so you've got the best part of two weeks to make your decision if you want one it's going to launch on the 1st of november at 2 p.m that's gmt and it'll be available for just nine hours until 11 p.m gmt and that means anyone placing an order within that window will be guaranteed a watch and then the first 500 
Watches will be delivered before Christmas 2023, barring any catastrophes, I suppose. And I suppose you will fulfill further orders in the 500 you possibly could take within that nine-hour window into 2024. Okay, you know, you're doing my job for me. No, I appreciate that. Yes. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the kind of the model, the the launch model that we've worked with in the past that, that tends to work really well because it's a good sweet spot between uh, customers being able to, you know, to purchase the watch and rather than suddenly there's a, you know, sold out message that, that pops up within the first few minutes or as you're, you're adding your card details, this allows us to keep a short window so the people that really are interested, at, you know, are there and able to, to, to make their purchase in in good time, um, whilst also allowing us then to to close the order window and essentially concentrate on on the fulfillment process for the remainder of the year and likely throughout into into early next year as well. So we've been working hard on our kind of uh, assembly, and uh, we've had a, a record month in terms of assembly output for the the current chrono range, the current outstanding orders uh, in September, which has been amazing. And really set us up for for the launch of uh, of this new series. So, as you said, first five hundred watches um, will be will be shipped out pre Christmas, which is yeah a bit of a bit of a record for uh, for Studio Underdog, really. And the plan is not to limit this model to a hard number, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly, exactly the same as the the, the Chrono Collection. You know, we don't plan to to have these as limited editions. Our focus is is getting watches on people's wrists, and, and if people like you know like what I'm doing, I, I want to uh, you know to give them every opportunity to to support and, and be a part of be a part of uh, of the growing business as well. So yeah, that's that's the uh, the model that I'm uh, I'll be sticking with. But it's likely, or it, I guess, depends on um, how many people are interested in this product that it probably won't be. Uh, the, the order book won't be reopened for, for quite some time, quite possibly towards the end of next year, really. Okay, so let's just buzz through a couple of the statistics that we haven't yet shared, and that is case dimensions. Remarkably, this piece is only 37 millimeters in diameter and 12 millimeters thick, right? Correct, yeah, yeah. So the 37, obviously, you know, makes sense in terms of a field watch, and the honest truth is I've got quite dinky little wrists, so I quite like uh, small watches. So that that choice was uh, was I guess for me, and then in terms of overall depth, we're really trying to uh, to keep it uh, as slim as possible. And I think achieving a twelve mil depth, considering there's a there's a two mil chunk of uh, of dial in there, is uh, is a bit of a feat in itself. Yeah. So how did you do that? I mean, does the movement have H four hands on it, or even custom hand height? Off the top of my brain, it might even be H10 hand height, if that if that exists. It's uh, I never heard of it. I never heard of H10, but I mean, I, yeah, I, two millimeters. That's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so, so thanks to to Salita for uh, for for allowing us to uh, you know to do that. And again, as I said, it's 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 something that allowed us to create something quite unique um, and a lot of fun. Really, this might be a weird question, but the higher hand height when it's that high doesn't have any effect on the power reserve does it no no effect on the power reserve because it's basically just an extension of uh, of the pinion it's just uh, the, the the central central uh, element is is just raised so no no real drain in terms of uh, of the power reserve true true um, the only other thing that we have to you know you have to consider is with this chunky dial and this raised hand height is all that additional um you know 
millimeters, which <laughs> in a watch, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the thickness millimeters is, is quite a large metric that all pushes uh, the crown down. So that's why it was so important when we were designing, you know, designing the case that we really had to, you know, build it from, from the ground up. There's no way that we could, you know, use the current chrono case or, or looking at, uh, you know, referencing other existing cases. We, we had to really sort of custom design it so the crown didn't look visually out of place. Um, so again, a little, a little design challenge that, uh, you know, is, is quite fun, you know, when, when we do find solutions. I'm very pleased that the crown is not a wimpy little crown considering it's a 37 mil watch and this is, uh, you know, supposed to be relatively faithful to the stylings of the day, which tend to have by modern standards quite oversized crowns. It's a lovely chunky looking thing that I'm sure is easy enough to grab and wind. But from the renders I have, because I have angles, um, which don't show me exactly how low the crown sits. Does the lug drop off ensure that when the watch is resting flat on a table, it's resting on its lugs or is the crown touching the table as well? No, no, it's resting on its lugs just, just about. So, uh, yeah, so, so no, uh, no issues there, but even that in itself was, was a challenge. And that's something that we had to build that the whole kind of case design around. Um, so yeah, well, well spotted. Brilliant stuff. And, People love to know lug-to-lug measurement. You've been kind enough to include it in the press release. It's 46 millimeters, so quite compact. 18 millimeter lug width, and that lug width will be filled by a strap from the strap tailor again. Yeah, that's it, the strap tailor. And we've also, because in in true, uh, you know, true field watch fashion, it, they look great on on a, an NATO strap. So we've also added, uh, oh, I probably can't call it a NATO these days, a single pass, uh, a single pass strap as well. So that that comes. Uh, comes with every single every single watch have you learned from the past to being schooled for calling a single pass an eight is that well not not really schooled i've uh you know ru- rumor has it that uh that someone that that owns the the trademark of nato is is going around shutting people down uh you know sending i don't know cease and desist or whatever, whatever the uh the legal uh you know the legislation is so i thought better safe than sorry and and avoid calling it a nato so yeah, that's a that's a whole other whole other topic in itself. Isn't the technical name for a NATO strap a G10, or did I make that up in my head? Oh, I've no idea. If that is the case, I should probably go around uh, changing my press release. But uh, yeah, I think single pass people uh, people get it. Um, you know, the the way we've designed the NATO as well is is it's just that you know we we've got a lot of NATOs have two pieces of a fabric between the case mm. uh, and your wrist, which which lifts the uh, the watch off. So we've designed ours in such a way that it's just uh, the single uh, single piece of fabric, um, just so it wears a little bit lower so we can you know, really make it look as, as slim as possible. I mean, I think, to be honest, a single pass fabric strap is the perfect and maybe only way to accurately describe it. From what I can remember, and I've written a lot of weird, very esoteric articles about NATO straps and Zulu straps in the past, but not for many years, I think G10 was the code of the NATO strap when it was issued to military personnel from the quartermaster. And it was specifically that two-layered fabric strap with angular hardware. That's one of the main differences between a NATO and a Zulu. It has this kind of like boxy hardware and tiny little pressed buckle. And the idea was, because the idea of having the, the two pieces of fabric is if you're, if one spring bar breaks the watch stays on your wrist, right? That's the whole point, right? So with a single pass, that is still the case, right? 
but it's obviously just a little little less robust but i mean it is much more comfortable and at 37 millimeters i think it's a better choice because it allows you to keep the watch as low profile as possible and since you made all those efforts to keep it as slim as you possibly could why ruin it with extra thickness on the strap so last stat that's probably useful for people to know 10 atm 100 meters water resistance so you can take this watch anywhere it's a nice subtle go anywhere do anywhere go anywhere do anything kind of watch so congrats richard you've done a great job here i think well we'll see time will tell uh, <laughs> uh, uh, to be honest i think yeah i'm very very happy with this this product and as as i said you know it's it's the right direction for the brand even if no one buys it although my mum has said that she's uh, she's interested in one so i think maybe i have uh, you know possibly one sale or maybe maybe a friends and family gift for my mother i don't know we'll we'll see. legend god bless your mum uh, she she makes the real time show a better place so um one more thing, talking of podcasts, I want to shout out to our friends up at Scottish Watches because you recently partnered with Scottish Watches, uh, Ricky and Dave and, well, all of Scotland behind them and the world, of course, to create a lovely humble blueberry watch, which was auctioned for the Every Watch auction hosted by Lion and Turnbull. Can you tell us a bit about this project? Tell us about the design of the Scottish Watches special edition for this good cause and exactly how much the boys up across the border had to do with designing this watch. For sure. So yeah, the the guys at Scottish Watches reached out to me and asked if I wanted to to be a part of, uh, of a charity auction. And for me, I've done a few charity projects. You know, I've, I've worked with you on the past uh, on, on a fun, fun charity project. And I really enjoy them because it, it gives me scope to, to design something something unique, something fun uh, for, for a wonderful cause. So Ricky gave me, gave me an incredibly open brief, which was, you know, design whatever you wanted, which as a designer is essentially the perfect brief. Uh, so there was no kind of requirements, no requests, uh, you know, no rules to follow. So I, I designed, uh, yeah, a nice blueberry, blueberry colored watch using yeah, different tones, uh, tones of blue and maybe there was some some link to 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 scotland there in terms of selecting the blue uh, going on in the back of my mind I, i'm not too sure it must have been the case because i think of all the other brands as well the vast majority of them seem to lean into this uh this blue color which which wasn't a part of the brief so you know that that was somewhat interesting um but yeah, they asked me to to submit a watch that would be auctioned for charity, so it, it, it was a no brainer for me. Um, and I, I'm pleased to say that the the auction did incredibly well. I think overall, uh, the total amount raised was I believe fifty five thousand uh, pounds, just under seventy thousand uh, dollars, which was just incredible. And you know, huge credit to all the other brands as well for their for their participation, and and a huge thanks to uh, to Ricky and Dave for. Um, you know, for facilitating it, basically. I think you're somewhat burying the lead here and being very humble, as I suppose we should expect of you. But you've got to tell us, what did this watch sell for? What did your Studio Underdog by Compact's ST1901 Humble Blueberry actually go for under the hammer? Oh, I know. Well, it, it was remarkable that the Humble Blueberry went, uh, you know, at a hammer price of uh, £16,000, which was <laughs> uh, really, really incredible. I was sort of watching it in the last uh, the last few moments, and 
in the last minute, you know, clearly a couple of people really decided that they wanted their hands on this blueberry. Um, and so things sort of went crazy within the last few seconds. Um, so yeah, so overall some, uh, some amazing results. And as I said, you know, 55,000 raised in total with, uh, with, with little old studio underdog, uh, contributing 16,000 pounds of that. I mean, that's not to be underestimated. That's more than 25% of the total as far as my maths are alive. That's in fact, it's almost a third. I mean, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Do you know who who it was that bid on that watch? I don't know. I uh, I reached out to you know to the auction house to see if they could share any details, but uh, are conscious of uh, you know the GDPR regulations that that information couldn't be shared. But but hopefully uh, someone you know the the proud owner of that watch, I, I'm sure, will eventually uh, post something on Instagram or, or or be spotted at a at a red bar or something of the like. It's uh, it's such a unique watch that I'm sure it's all it'll show up somewhere and it's 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 not really the type of watch that that someone's going to buy just to chuck in a safe you know this is a watch that has a real a real story behind it so yeah we'll see I, i'm excited uh, as anyone to to see where it has ended up what an incredible initiative congratulations to you and to scottish watches and to the owner of the humble blueberry we look forward to you revealing yourself one day so that you can be adored a community-wide for your incredible generosity and excellent taste. Richard, we're going to wrap things up there. Thank you for spending so much time talking to us about the new watch. I really appreciate the in-depth expose of it, and I'm sure that anybody that was waiting for your second album will be very, very keen to rush out and buy one and support you as you look to write your third. If any of our audience have questions for Richard, you can do so by getting in touch with me on Instagram, either at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or my regular co-host Alon Ben-Joseph at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or you can contact Alon or I at our email addresses, either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show, or via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. If you'd like to join the Real Time Network, our WhatsApp community, and get involved with one of the fastest growing podcast communities in the world, then please just send us a message and we'll add you straight away. Richard, thanks again. We'll get you on for your fourth appearance on The Real Time Show soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. Thanks a lot, Rob. 